Beautiful. Your second wine is a Brooks 2005 Riesling from Willamette Valley, Oregon. That's being passed out right now. Our second storyteller for the evening, reading from the back of the bar, is the fabulous Bobby Badrisky. What's up in the back? All right, okay, 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 okay. So if I were to tell it to you, reference it, as if you were part of my family or the neighborhood where I grew up, there are a number of different things I might call that particular time in my life. The beginning of my eighth grade year, the October that the deer went crazy, or even the winter that the world started to expand. And it was all those things. And shortly I'll tell you how and why, but above all else, if you knew it like those of us in St. Paul did, and I really wanted to place you back in that time, all I would simply have to say is that that was the autumn that the girls began to go missing. But before the girls even, there was the DRC. It happened on a Friday in late September. My little brother Mark and I had just walked home from our tiny Catholic elementary school a few miles away. Yes, at 11 and 8 years old, we walked places alone. (laughs) That was St. Paul, Minnesota. Tree-lined streets, dogs everywhere, people smiling. It was like a Rockwell painting with a pulse. So there we were, standing on our front steps, digging in our bags for the garage door opener like the latchkey kids we were when we first saw it. It was what any experienced Minnesota deer hunter would have referred to as a ten-point buck. A fully grown male deer with a huge rack of horns, and it was bounding down our street, charging directly at us. My brother backed up against me, and I backed up against the garage door. The buck entered our driveway, made a sharp left, and with one push of its powerful spring-like legs, smashed through the front window of our house. I could feel my little brother's body shaking against me, but beyond that, neither of us moved. Two hours later, my mom let my brother and I watch as animal control drug the deer carcass out the back door of our house and dropped it on the small cement patio my father had put in two summers earlier so we could grill family meals outdoors. It lay there, this magnificent creature, shards of glass sticking out of its body, fur wet with blood, a gunshot wound to the side of the head, and I'd never been so confused in my life. We were told the deer had gone mad, and once inside the house became disoriented due to the loss of blood it sustained from the window cuts. It had knocked over china cabinets, toppled the dining room table, and bled on nearly everything. Our home had been destroyed. Weeks later, just as things seemed to get back to normal, our house had been cleaned, new furniture had been bought, and Halloween approached, the first girl went missing. Her name was Jennifer Nightingale. She was a tall beanpole of a 14-year-old with dark brown hair and big bangs who was trusted to walk home after a soccer practice that ended at 6 p.m. Her friends saw her last taking a shortcut through a small wooded area near the practice field called Kipler's Creek. She never showed up at home that evening. And two nights later, as my family watched the 10 o'clock news, some toothy reporter in front of Jennifer's house interviewing crying parents, my mother forbid us to go anywhere but home after school. Come straight here, she said. Stay together while you walk and never leave each other's side. I agreed. And as I sat on the floor of our newly carpeted living room, my pajamas sticking to my still wet, freshly bathed body, I knew things were never going to be the same again. I'm sure that as we sit here today, right, 
We all know what happens when a child disappears, especially in a close-knit community. But I should remind you that this is nearly 20 years ago, the middle of the fucking 80s, people. I mean, this is pre-Amber Alert, pre-John Bonet. Fuck. It was even pre-Adam Walsh, that kid who disappeared in Florida whose dad went on to host America's Most Wanted. <laughs> At this time, nobody knew quite what to do about a missing child. The abduction epidemic hadn't spread yet, especially to small-town America. So shortly after Jennifer's disappearance, life, once again, like after the deer incident, attempted to veer back towards normal. Except that it wasn't normal. Things were changing. And that was before I saw what I saw on Afton Boulevard. It was a Monday, the first day of December. I know that because I remember I had just gotten one of those advent calendars the kind that dispense a piece of chocolate each day leading up to Christmas. My mom had started coming home from work earlier, and she was cleaning the kitchen while I played alone in our fenced-in backyard, throwing a tennis ball for our huge black lab to retrieve. He had just returned the ball to me when I noticed something on the boulevard about a football field away from our house. I saw a girl, probably my age, slender, wearing a bright pink ski jacket, walking north on the sidewalk adjoined to the boulevard. Now... I was at that age where you start to notice almost anything female. So I looked, and as I did, I saw a large brown sedan approach her from behind and slow to a roll. I dropped the tennis ball and began to focus on what I was watching while instinctually walking slowly toward it. The girl's sandy blonde hair was pulled back into a ponytail, and it was this that allowed me to see her shaking her head back and forth in that unmistakable gesture of no. I walked until our fence would allow me to go no further, and then I jumped in and began to walk somewhat stealthily through my neighbor's yard until I got to some bushes that left me maybe 60 feet from what was happening. But what was happening I couldn't be sure of. I mean, maybe she knew this person. The car had now stopped, and so had the girl. I could see in the front seat of the car, I could see that it was a man driving, that he was slightly balding. It could have been anybody, her uncle, or basketball. The girl started to look back and forth, up and down the boulevard in both directions, like she was trying to find somebody, anybody, to get her away from this conversation. Should I run and get my mom, I thought? Should I run toward the girl? Maybe this is just my overactive imagination getting the best of me. And then, before I could make any of those decisions, with all the calm and ease of a child returning to a parent, the girl shrugged and simply opened the door and got into the car. I was close enough now that I could see the man smile at her before the car slowly drifted away up the street. My stomach dropped. An awful realization spread over me. I walked in the back door of my house and found my mother scrubbing the sink. Mom... I said, my voice kind of crackling with the weight of the words I was about to say. She stopped and looked up from her scrubbing. I think I just saw an abduction. And with those words, I felt my world shift. We all have these moments, right, as kids? These moments when everything just seems to shift. And it's almost like at that point you can feel the world rapidly expanding around you, expanding beyond your bedroom and beyond your neighborhood, expanding beyond the home of your furthest relative, beyond the places you went on vacation, expanding out to depths and locations that were still dark and unknown to you, to places where deer rampage through homes and young girls get kidnapped on tree-lined streets, expanding beyond comfort, beyond safety, 
forcing you to accept that the world is bigger than you know and that you might not fully understand it. Well, that was mine. That was my expanding moment. And the world only got bigger the next day when I found out that her name was Molly Peterson. And like Jennifer Nightingale, she'd gone to the local public junior high that was only located blocks away from my tiny Catholic school. Also, like Jennifer, she never arrived home that night. The police came to my house, and while I should have been digging through Sears catalogs, circling pictures of gifts I wanted on my Christmas wish list, I was instead being asked to pick out the man I saw in the car from a book of hundreds of Polaroids of pedophiles and perverts who all looked the same, like every police sketch drawing you've ever seen, glasses, balding, creepy. I picked one because I was told to, but in truth, I had no real idea of what that man looked like. In the days that followed, I was told time and time again that it wasn't my fault, and like before, things attempted to regain normalcy while we, the children, had restrictions imposed on every part of our lives. Christmas caroling was canceled. Nobody ever sledded or skated at the rec center after dark, regardless of how many lights they left on. And parent car rides replaced buses and walking as the favored mode of transportation home from school. Another girl, a few counties west of us, went missing a week or so later. And despite the distance, police considered her case far too similar and said it had to be connected to what was happening in St. Paul. I know now from what in my teen years eventually became a type of morbid fascination with serial killers, that whoever this was, was moving into a phase called the comfort zone, a place where the criminal gets cocky and brazen, almost teasing police, daring them to catch him. Perhaps that's why they found the first body when they did, at around 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve. My mother and father had tried their best to let Christmas arrive and be celebrated, even amidst the kidnappings and deer assaults. That night, we had just finished opening a gift each. That was all we were allowed on Christmas Eve until the next morning. My father was about to read us his traditional oration of the night before Christmas when my mother turned on the news so we could see if the weather was favorable for Santa. It wasn't the girl that I had seen, but that didn't make it any less awful. It was the first girl, Jennifer. She'd been found in a nature preserve less than three miles from where we were sitting. For the record, the other two bodies were never found, nor was the killer or killers. And although disappearances still happened from time to time in St. Paul, none were ever linked directly to what became known as the Kipler Creek Three. My mom waited until the report was over, then shut off the television. And that night, as the world outside expanded further and became all the more confusing, the four of us slept together, cuddled in my parents' king-size bed. Give me more than one.
satisfy this heart. 